And we're back. I'm Gervier Bra. I'm here with Chamal Karsandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into Reservoir Dogs and talking everything Quentin Tarantino. Put the gun down! Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. In our first segment, we're talking Reservoir Dogs. So if you're weird about spoilers and you want to skip around, we got timestamps in the description. We're also going to be talking about a bunch of other Quentin Tarantino stuff. But we're talking about a classic. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, I, I mean, obviously, just speaking for myself, Tarantino, I hold to like a next level reverence as far as movies go. Like for me, it's as good as it gets. As Tar- like Tarantino is my guy as far as directors go. Yep. We're finally getting into his first official direct de- uh, directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. How are you feeling? I feel pretty good. It's such a fun movie to watch. I've watched it countless times over the years. We just rewatched it before recording the podcast today. And um, man, 1992. And I guess, I guess a, a good starting point would be like, I guess your first experience. Because for me, it, I was too young to go to the theater or the cinema in, back in the UK to watch it. In fact, I hadn't even been to the cinema before. Uh, I think the Santa Claus in 1995 and this movie came out in 1992. Yeah. So I think the first time, if I remember correctly, watching Reservoir Dogs wasn't even before Pulp Fiction. Like I was too young. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And Reservoir Dogs had a kind of cult following yeah. for adults at that time. But it wasn't until Pulp Fiction. And by the time Pulp Fiction comes out, comes out, I'm in high school and it's like a big movie. Everyone's talking about it. I watch Pulp Fiction and then I watch Reservoir Dogs on video on VHS mm-hmm. and I'm like yo this, this is incredible this is in, this is amazing and then that's when you start or well, at least when that's when I started my my big long fandom about Tarantino and you start to go on this journey with him over the course of 25 30 years now yeah I, I specifically remember like watching Pulp Fiction as my first Tarantino movie it's just the, the most annoying thing I think for a lot of people who first watch any kind of Tarantino is they'll go on Google and they'll write best movies of all time and then Pulp Fiction's like right up there you watch Pulp Fiction and you're automatically thinking like, okay, cool, live up to all my standards. And even for me, the first time I watched Pulp Fiction, I was like, okay, cool, it's it's good. But I'm not sure I understand why it's the best movie ever. And it wasn't until I grew up where I was like, oh, fuck, this might be the best movie ever. Mm-hmm. The best thing about Tarantino is he makes movies for people who like movies. Yeah. Right? And that's that's what it's all about, if you ask me. Like we're movie nerds and that's what we want to see we want to see people who actually give a fuck about what they're doing and he might be the biggest movie nerd currently working in hollywood right yeah. now and you go back to the late 80s early 90s which is when tarantino kind of broke onto the scene it wasn't how it was now yeah where everyone you can make a, a movie with a, an iphone yeah. right now if you wanted to and a lot of like independent filmmakers actually do do that yeah it's so much cheaper now to try and make a movie and try and break into the the industry back then it's like, all right, have you got a script? Can you get a producer? Can you get financing? Can you get actors? Can you get the right production crew to make a very kind of small indie movie? And that's all this was at that time. Let's be honest. It cost a couple of million to make and it made a couple of million at the box office. Think about that for a second. It cost a couple of million to make and it only made a couple of million at the at the box office during its run and during its release. It was the word of mouth. It was the VHS sales and the video sales and people started to understand 
understand and you know find out and hear about this movie called Reservoir Dogs and why it's so cool that's why it got this cult following that's why when it came to his kind of sophomore release anyone and everyone in Hollywood was like yo I need to work with Quentin Tarantino yeah and uh, and obviously you know you know after Pulp Fiction comes out that's that becomes a legitimate commercial success he wins the oscar he revitalizes john travolta's career he puts samuel jackson on the map and from that moment on he was never looking back but reservoir dogs that has got all of tarantino's dna and i can't wait to go into the the meat and bones of this yeah movie. exactly let's get into it because the, the cool thing about this movie is it's a heist movie where everything goes wrong and you're dealing with the immediate consequences of all that there's somebody dying there might be a rat as a potential double cross all this shit is happening and you're just watching as an audience member just getting hit with all this anxiety because that's like i feel is like the blood of this movie you mm. just are as an audience member you're not you know on the ride for you know the, the like a normal heist movie where it's like all right let's let's get the group together and let's get uh, let's figure out the dynamics of everybody and let's figure out the plan and then let's execute it this movie is that last act completely stretched out and then like you're given some detail just kind of sprinkled in and we'll talk about like the style and like how Quentin Tarantino kind of developed his signature style through this movie the tone is set if you ask me for Tarantino's entire career through that opening dialogue sequence of just all those guys just sitting around the table just having a conversation and that's really what is Tarantino's like thesis for his entire career because they're they're covering stuff like Madonna, like a virgin. They're just talking about that. Like it's just a bunch of guys just hanging out talking about music. And then it just turns into a conversation about tipping and how like Mr. Pink doesn't believe in tipping and all that kind of stuff is just again the signature style of what Tarantino does mm -hmm. because he just makes everything feel like it's real life right it's real life conversations these are real characters and therefore i'm gonna give a fuck about them that extra mile it's one of the greatest opening scenes from any movie period yeah what tarantino does so well is he just writes fantastic dialogue between all your main characters yeah. and like you said they're, just, they're regular conversations but it's conversations that are relatable to the audience and the funny thing is is that detail that became a part of his signature as a filmmaker got rep replicated so much yeah. in the 90s in movies like The Usual Suspects and some others that it, it was almost like, oh, oh, I see what you're doing. You're ripping off Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's it was already a part of the, the movie lexicon that that's a Tarantino like signature. Yeah, 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 exactly. And Tarantino actually has this great quote I heard the other day where he was talking about how uh, what he does is he takes, he says he's taking genre characters in genre situations and giving them a real spin. Have them sound like real people make references that movie characters don't necessarily talk about talk about stuff besides the plot because normal people don't just talk about the plot mm -hmm. when i heard that i was like that's who tarantino that's his writing yeah that's just exactly what he does is right there and it's like a perfect execution of what he does there's no melodrama there's no overacting it's real shit and, and that's why tarantino works and also we see and you touched on it a little bit there we start to get an understanding of how Tarantino likes to play around with the editing of his movies yeah. because moving forward, it is very much a diamond heist gone wrong and the fallout. And then we see the fallout of that, but we don't get the color and the background 
on our main characters and the key characters until we get these flashback scenes yeah. that are interspliced throughout the entire yeah, movie. Because right after we get the dialogue at the cafe, boom, we cut right to Tim Roth sitting in the back seat of a car. And we're like, wait, what the hell just happened? He just flips the script right away. And the opening scene just automatically, again, sets the tone of what you can expect. It's non-linear storytelling. He always talks about the reason why he does this is because he was like, I read a lot of novels and novels do this all the time. Why can't this work in a movie? Why would it have to be confusing for, you know, an audience member to not be able to understand that this is just a non, like a non-sequential story, right? And that's why, it, again, the sequencing of Tarantino movies is just so important. And time-wise, it just makes everything so much more exciting as you're going through the story. And also, it's a good thing to point out at this stage that the movies that Tarantino makes, there's two types of movies. And he's talked about this, right? There's the the realer than real world universe, which includes Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Pulp Fiction, Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchanged, and The Hateful Eight. And then you've got the movie movie universe, which includes Natural Born Killers from Dust Till Dawn and Kill Bill. Now he hasn't directed all of those, but he's got writing credit on a lot of those movies. And basically what this means is there are Tarantino movies that he's either written or directed that are connected together. They're like, in the same world and then he makes movies that the characters in his movies would watch at the theater yeah and i love that yeah exactly i love that he was always thinking that deep level from the jump yeah and and you can see that like even if we just compare it to like the stuff that he's doing now but like once upon a time in hollywood is like all of that in a nutshell Mm -hmm. because it's a character making movies that he would want to make anyways it's like it's the most inception (laughs) the tarantino-esque thing that you could possibly fucking do yeah Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? Do you know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. <laughs> One thing I love about this movie is just soundtrack, mm-hmm. right? It's like, this movie obviously has, like, that iconic stuck-in-the-middle-with-you scene, and it's just a perfect example of how you can, like, basically just attach a song with a very specific scene and forever you're going to be thinking whenever i hear it stuck in the middle with you i'm always going to be thinking about this there's two musical cues from this movie that i absolutely love yeah the first is a part of that opening scene you have the dialogue in the in the cafe and then it's and it's just this iconic slow motion uh, shot of all the characters with shades mm-hmm. and the white shirts, black tie. I mean, how gangster. How many how many bedrooms had that poster on their wall in the 90s and early 2000s, honestly? You know what? Even on top of that, like the imagery of that scene, all these guys are wearing the exact same thing, but they're such distinct personalities and their mannerisms are so different. Like everyone has such a different swagger. Yeah. And because of that, right from the first scene, just watching them walk together, you're like, okay, cool. I want to see what happens with these specific group of guys. Yeah. So that was the first musical cue for that particular scene. And then the second is stuck in the middle with you. And I was thinking about this while we were watching it today. I was like, I don't know if growing up where I did, if I would stumble across a song like this and be like, oh, that's a a great song. That's a really cool song. And it's because of the use of that song in this movie that I kind of have a connection to this song. Like as soon as that scene starts, I saw my feet start start to like bop up and down. I saw your foot start to bop up and down. I'm like, yo, this is a kind of scene that is so iconic. You've seen it a million times, but every time you do, it's 
as gruesome as that particular scene is, it's a great song, man. It's just iconic. That's like, that's a, like the biggest thing is we, again, we just associate these things with Tarantino scenes and these are like some of the most iconic scenes in film history. Yeah. I do want to get into a few of the uh, individual characters. The first one I want to talk about, obviously, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd consider this person the protagonist. I'm not sure if anybody really gets that distinction, but I feel like Harvey Keitel as Mr. White is the closest thing we would have to something like that. Yeah. Though it's like an ensemble cast and all that. And a lot of people kind of share the screen. I think like you could argue that Mr. Orange is the main character. You could argue Mr. White is the main character. That's probably the only two, but uh, I feel like you could like, it's like almost like the departed where it's two different guys on opposite sides and they don't, they, we just don't get to like deep dive into their backstories as much as say something like the departed would. The beauty about this movie is it's such a strong ensemble cast and, and most of the characters are fleshed out so well and the, the di- dynamic they have between each other and the scenes and the dialogue that Tarantino writes of them make them feel so rich yeah. that you could have a debate in terms of who is the quote unquote lead. Yeah. But an important thing to know about Harvey Cartel is he was so important. They couldn't make this movie without him. Yeah. He came on board to say, hey, I'm going to like be like one of the lead characters oh and by the way i'm gonna try and help finance this for you as yeah. well not only that that story of like harvey Keitel getting that movie made what tarantino talks about is that Keitel gave him legitimacy right and it gave him the power to be like listen we got harvey Keitel in our movie i'm a nobody but i have this guy and that's the reason all the other dominoes kind of fell because he was willing to take a chance on a no-name director who like he said was outside of Hollywood basically. But also it's easy to look back now and be like, yo, how did they get Tim Roth and Michael Madsen and Steve Buscemi? But you have to understand these guys weren't the, those guys back then in the early 90s. They were like young, hungry actors trying to like get a part in a movie and hopefully make it. I mean, you look back at their resumes now, it's incredible. Yeah. But like, it's, a, it's an amazing thing where like it was almost a perfect storm, right? You had the vet in Harvey Keitel co-signed the project. You've got this young, hungry, up-and-coming, brilliant, genius writer-filmmaker in Tarantino, and then you have a plethora of actors who are like just coming together, you know, start of their prime, and they're putting on banging performances, man. Yeah, and you gotta say, like, there is so few anybody in filmmaking who can really talk about their roster of people that they've cast in their movies that are stronger than what he's done. He's put together either some, like obviously some of the best careers ever and like been the launching pad for that, or he's put together some of the most interesting mixes of people, or like you said, rejuvenated Travolta's career, or again, pairing together Pitt and Leo. Obviously that sounds like a no brainer. Why wouldn't you put Brad Pitt, a fucking crazy leading man, one of the most handsome men in history against, again, his like other counterpart of like equally handsomeness, equally like headliner-ish and that's Leonardo DiCaprio and putting them together seems like a no-brainer but to for it to actually work to the level that it did man like that's a different level of execution the thing with Tarantino is he's done that so well consistently throughout his entire catalog I'm trying to think like who else which other filmmaker has actually done that consistently like the only I can give like a a tip of the cap to someone like say a Steven Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven bravo you got all these A-listers and some young up-and-coming actors together again perfect storm but you didn't do that time and time and time again Tarantino that's again a part of his signature Mm -hmm. you said it right then Leo and Brad Pitt in the movie that could go horribly wrong a million different ways but because it's in the hands of Tarantino he made it work 
Yeah, I think it has to be somebody with that kind of pedigree, especially for that. Like, imagine if Tarantino was trying to make Once Upon a Time in Hollywood now. Yeah. Trying to control that level of ego and all that kind of stuff and making sure you're balancing it. But people are, like, willing to give themselves to the roles, to the level that they do in Tarantino movies because they trust that this guy has the ability to actually execute at the very highest level. And he's proven himself at this point. I think everything changed after Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You know, after Pulp Fiction, it was like, all right, you know, he's proven himself. He wasn't a one-hit wonder with the Reservoir Dogs. You know, the sophomore came out. And I think after that movie, it's like, who do you want to work with? Because they're going to want to work with you. You can literally fancy book your entire film right now and nine times out of ten, you're going to get that casting nailed down all day long. And, and the fun thing is, like, as much as we're talking about, like, the chemistry of, like, two different people, even, like, when we look at this movie, the opening scene with uh, Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel, you can just tell right off the bat, this guy's dying. It's an amazing scene where he's just trying to survive and he's trying to be supportive. They're both so good in this. And then you have, again, Steve Buscemi just walks in and elevates the scene. The, the best thing about Harvey Keitel in this movie is it's just an in, this movie kind of deals with morality in an interesting way like who's the good guy the cop who's like double crossing all these people and shoots an innocent woman Mr. White who demonstrates that he has like this honor among thieves thing Mr. Orange is just like he's so lucky that Mr. White was the one that was with him because if, if that was anybody else in that crew he would have been dead yep like right up, he would have left him for dead like right when he got shot fuck it it's over you can hear Mr. Pink be like some people just die it is what it is but again, Mr. White, honor amongst thieves, it's so important to him and nobody else has that trait. Yeah. That's what makes him such an interesting and distinct character in this movie. Man, I have to say, I think Buscemi and Keitel, the scenes that they share together are probably my, my favorite scenes in the yeah. entire movie. Because like you said, you've got the honor among thieves kind of arc with Harvey Keitel, but then Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, first of all, I find him hilarious, mm-hmm. right? I think he's got some of the best dialogue in the entire movie. You know I, I also want to say on top of that, I think Tarantino is low key. One of the best comedic dialogue writers in Hollywood history. Oh yeah. As far as like, cause you know what? He doesn't try to make comedies, mm-hmm. but so much of so many of his movies are just so funny and we just like we when we're watching this movie we've seen it before but we're laughing out loud to so many different parts well the reason why some of these scenes are funny especially for mr pink is he cuts the bullshit yeah it's like hey hang on a second let me understand this let me kind of like figure out what the hell is going on he's calling out the fact that there's a rat he's saying hey listen we're not going to spend the next 90 minutes in this warehouse for this movie why the fuck aren't we getting out of here right now i have the diamonds let's book it yeah right he is the voice of reason yeah. but it's the circumstance and the other characters that keep him in that warehouse the entire movie yeah and, and you're right the Kaitel and Buscemi dynamic is it's just fantastic right it, it, it is dynamic and within itself but yeah. when they're like pointing the guns at each other that's such an incredible scene you wanna fuck with me I'll show you who you're fucking with you wanna shoot me you little piece of shit go ahead take a shot fuck you white I didn't create this situation I'm dealing with it you're acting like a first year fucking thief I'm acting like a professional they get him, they could get you. They get you, they get closer to me, and that can't happen. The one thing that Tarantino does is he elevates the scene so much, so much, so much to the point where you're like, fuck, what's going to happen? And then something will come in and interrupt it and then bring it back down and then you build back up. It's masterful storytelling. It's masterful directing. This guy is just, again, a master at fucking all, like, all these aspects of filmmaking and everything I feel like I value in filmmaking, this guy just does in spades. And then he also gives you the shock factor. Yeah. Right? Like when you have the scene with with a cop who's already been through so much torture. Yeah. Right? You think, oh my God, you know, here here you have Tim Roth who's just saved this cop 
thank God. And in walks nice guy, Eddie. Oh, this guy, bang, 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 he's dead. I You're love like, that. Whoa, what's going on? Yeah, exactly. They come back. Mr. Orange explains why he kills Mr. Blunt. I love that because he's. He, you would think logically, like, hey, he's saving this guy from being burned alive. Eddie goes, this cop, boom, dead. And then Eddie's like, Mr. Blonde went to jail for my family, did not snitch. And you're telling me he was going to sell out? And then, again, the scene escalates. And because it's the conclusion, Joe walks in. Mr. Orange is the snitch. He is just using his intuition. Mr. White starts defending the fucking snitch. Uh, and then they have that standoff. And it's just fucking incredible. And it's got the signature of Tarantino and his love for Westerns because the movie ends with a Mexican standoff yeah, exactly. where everyone dies. It's yeah. incredible, man. It, it's, it's the best. And, and, and even when you... Uh, I, I think like a really underrated part of this movie is Michael Madsen, right? Obviously, he, he just oozes charisma. Like he's like Razor Ramon in this movie, yeah. right? He's so naturally charismatic. I'm surprised he didn't end up being like a bigger star, if I'm being honest. And you know, everybody always wanted to see the Vega Brothers movie. Yeah, yeah. Him and Travolta, perhaps in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was so much talk of Tarantino bringing them together in some sort of prequel scenario. It was supposed to be called the Double V Vega. I think that's what it was supposed to end up being called. But like, yeah, it's like, even from that, like he just has like this old school cowboy, like this badass persona. And it's just great. Like I love seeing how well that character works across the board. And for better or worse, he does have the most iconic, the most talked about scene from the entire movie. Yep. Like that torture scene where he cuts off the cops, Marvin's ear. I had to study that at college. Yeah. Like we studied and there's this, I did a, I did a short, I, did a, I made a short film in the early 2000s as part of my college degree. And I didn't know that I was doing it at the time, but there was supposed to be a scene where some, it was, the movie was called Slit and someone r- slits their wrist. But the way I shot the movie was you, the, the camera pans off and then you just see blood splatter on the water. And I remember my, my teacher at the time said, oh, you know what you've just done? You've done Tarantino. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he'll set the scene up that's about to be super gruesome, but then it'll cut away. And that's what you never see the ear get sliced off. Yeah, you just hear it happening. You hear the song. Tarantino pans the camera to the left, and you're, it's all left up to your imagination yeah. until then. You ultimately seen, uh, sorry, you ultimately see rather Madsen holding the ear, throwing it on the ground, and then you get the uber graphic shot of the side of the head missing an ear earlobe. So I, I gotta ask though, why why didn't he become a bigger star? I am like a you know I, I didn't I grew up in the nineties, so like I'm just a kid while I'm watching all this stuff. I don't know what the context is. Why mm. didn't Madsen become a bigger star than he was? I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, you know, he had he's had his run in a lot of Tarantino movies. So he also he always had that go to like Tarantino's gonna make a movie. You're most likely gonna have some part of it, whether it's a small role or a big role, whatever the case may be. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one because yeah, you look at him, you know, back in 1992 when Reservoir Dog comes out and he's like young, he's slim, he's got tons of charisma, he's a good looking guy. You would think that, okay, this is a guy that can go on a serious run in Hollywood, especially when you look at who else was making it in the 90s. Yeah. I don't know what happened, man. I don't know yeah, what happened. I, I, I don't know. Like it feels like such a no brainer that he would have been like somebody in like uh, a leading man capacity in something, right? But also, and I don't know if this is coming through his performances, he kind of just has this thing about him where I feel like he doesn't give a shit. He's so aloof. 
You know, he's so aloof, he's like, but yeah, like, I'll just whatever. I don't care. I think in a different era, he's like the biggest star in the world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if he's like a, a huge star in the seventies or like right. anywhere before the eighties, I feel like this guy's the man. Maybe in some sort of Tarantino parallel universe, yeah, he's like Leo or Brad Pitt or something. Yeah, in a different world, like where Leo as his character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is making all those old movies in the fifties and the sixties, like he's among there just being another badass with Steve McQueen and uh, and Leo's character. Hundred percent. Obviously, Kieran Tarantino, as a director, this is like his first thing that he does. And just, uh, again, we talk about how he directs and how it's in like really non-sequential. But what I really want to compare this to is uh, the way Tarantino jumps between scenes is really like a great album. He lets you kind of like live in like the tone of something for long enough as long as it's working. Once it's not working, he switches it up completely and then... He lets it, the movie, breathe all over again. And mm. it just deepens your relationship with these characters and their backstories and all that kind of stuff, obviously with what's going on in this movie specifically. But I feel like he's just so good at executing a full project. It's when a director writes the script and it's an original screenplay, it's an original story, that filmmaker already knows what the movie is supposed to look like in his head. And the fact that he's got that blueprint from the jump, he can guide an editor. He can guide a production designer or a set designer or a makeup artist. And the fact that, you know, he's got this you know signature DNA across all of his movies just shows he knows what he wants. Yeah. He knows what he wants the ultimate product to look like and the, ult- the movie experience to feel like for the, for the, for the audiences. Um, so that's not a surprising take at all. You know what's also interesting about Tarantino movies is like obviously like these days we have the experience of like movies like Django and movies that kind of deal with race in a very overt way this movie is interesting because obviously like 99 percent of the cast is white Mm -hmm. right and tarantino's films they always feature at least mild or overt racism like one way or another it's always like that and i don't know if it's meant to feel very authentic because it's a sign of the times like it's 90s it's casual racism like that's you know whether if you grew up in that time it, you're, it's not like a ridiculous thing. Like nowadays it might feel like a little bit more like what what the hell are they doing? Why are they making this a part of the film? Why is it so casual? And why is it part of the fabric of like the culture they're building in these characters? But it's interesting to see that, you know, if it was this group of guys and you see specific ones who are, are using like racial slurs, like the N word and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I feel like that's a part of the criticism Tarantino's had to bear on his shoulders throughout his entire career, yeah. right from the beginning. And you've obviously had so many actors, most notably Samuel L. Jackson, have to address this. You know, he's the one that gets all the questions when it comes to all the Tarantino movies, the use of profanity and and racial slurs and things of that nature. And Jackson has been in pretty much all of his movies, uh, you know, bar one or two here and there. Yeah. And for him to come out time and time again and defend Tarantino and say it's okay and say he's not a racist, like... He's had his, he's had his boy there kind of helping him out yeah. to kind of, you know, deflect some of the criticism. And I don't know what it's, it's, it's tough, right? Because how would we feel, you know, if as, they were walking around saying like, like slurs that we're familiar with. Exactly. Yeah, I, I totally understand that perspective. It's also interesting on the other side to be like, well, they're all like robbers and killers. So I don't know why we're drawing the line here on morality. Right. Right. For these characters. So it's, it's almost like a weird little area to kind of talk about, especially because again, early 90s like they're all, listen, this is a gangster movie they're all bad guys yeah. outside of Tim Roth's character Mr. Orange yeah. and Marvin the cop exactly like and even Mr. Orange is obviously a very questionable person yeah and like he doesn't really participate in any of that kind of stuff but it's just interesting that like 
it's something that kind of exists in the movies. And he made a choice to include this stuff because I think for him and his perspective and his existence, this is how it is. This is how people talk in his world. And it's not just the movies like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Like you've got Nazis in Inglorious Bastards talking about Jews the way they do and how they feel about Jews. Like this is something that's consistently, you know, obviously this Django Unchanged is, is, uh, you know, I keep calling it Django Unchanged. It's Django Unchained. (laughs) He doesn't go through a lot of uh, progress in this movie. No, he doesn't. (laughs) And listen, maybe that's a, a conscious, you know, effort on his part to kind of sew that into his movies because it's important to him. He's talked about, you know, time and time again that his childhood where he grew up uh in la like he literally just had black friends yeah and it's interesting too because if you watch a movie like mid 90s with jonah hill he peppers in like people just saying the n-word all over the place like even like the white character is everybody right and what he's trying to like get across is like this is how people talked right right he's using like homophobic slurs as well and it's it's just interesting to see that like that's how they personally felt that their experience was growing up or being in that time. Yeah. And if, if it's like, are we sugarcoating the 90s if we don't say anything? Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's such an interesting little place because you're dealing with such different times when you're really like making the art and presenting it in a different way. I wonder if, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years from now, there's another filmmaker like, oh, you know what? I want to make, I want to remake a classic. I'm going to remake Reservoir Dogs, but all the characters are brown. The funny thing all is the- Tarantino actually had this idea that he was going to remake all of Reservoir Dogs but the whole cast was gonna be black. Really? He actually was gonna do that. That was also one of his, uh, one, one of his like potential last movies. Wow. Because it would have been like a, a bookend, capping it all off. Right. right? Okay. Interesting. Yeah, and, and it's just interesting to see like how that would have affected the entire perspective of it. If mm-hmm. they, like, how would you change the dialogue in that specific way to to match everything up? I think back to when he was trying to get this movie made. He had Harvey Keitel come on board in the cosign. How many, you know, really at the top of their game, African-American actors were available that could have said, hey, I want to work with QT on this movie. Was Denzel at, you know, in 1992 at the peak of his powers? Yeah. Probably not. I think I think that came kind of more towards the end of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Who else was there? Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very interesting thing to kind of go back to a certain period of time and look at how this movie was made, why it was made, why it was cast, who got the opportunities and who didn't and how the industry has slowly evolved and changed. And and now we're lucky uh, that there are so many, uh, there's so much diversity and there continues to be more and more diversity year on year. That just wasn't the case in the early 90s. You could say the same thing about like, even just how he casted his movies going forward right after that. Right. Right. Like I think he, it's almost like course correction. Like right after he saw, I'm sure that was like an immediate thing. Why are there only white people in this movie? Right. And then all of a sudden he goes and casts Sam Jackson and everybody else in Pulp Fiction. But then the next movie is uh, Jackie Brown. Yep. And again, totally different experience. And you just kind of like start to understand his, his love of like black exploitation movies or black exploitation movies. I kind of want to ask you, like, were there any unanswered questions? Anything that you felt like that was like missing we didn't talk about? I got one. Yeah. And I think it's the big one by the end of the movie. And it's, does Mr. Pink get away with the satchel of diamonds? I would love nothing more than to watch like that movie. Yes. Right? Like, could you imagine just the, the, the movie of Mr. Pink on the run trying to get away? Or, all this just like that would be an amazing sequel or just where is mr pink now sure like he got away with a satchel full of diamonds that are probably worth millions of dollars in the early 90s where is he in life now is he still like you know hustling what's he doing where's he at i want to see that movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely uh but yeah let's get into some of our categories uh first one obviously is best character who do you got for this one this is so so tough 
it comes down it's a two horse race for me and it's either Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink or it's Harvey Keitel as Mr. White and they both give polar opposite performances yeah. but when they come together they are absolute dynamite I'm basing this purely off our most recent rewatch man Steve Buscemi had me howling and just laughing and smiling I love his character arc and I love how he's trying to be the voice of reason all the time but he gets buoyed off by so many of the other more senior characters yeah. so I don't think there's any wrong answer by the way but I'm going with Steve Buscemi I don't think there's a wrong answer either but I think Mr. White like he is my runner-up too. With it. What you don't do is start shooting up the place and start killing people. Now, what you're supposed to do is act like a fucking professional. Psychopath ain't a professional. Can't work with a psychopath. You don't know what those sick assholes are going to do next. And it's only because, like, you know, he is a little bit more of a cookie-cutter character. Right. Right? You, you know what you're getting from that character, and that's why it works so well. He needs to be the base of this movie. There yep. needs to be some sort of morality that you can play off. Yep. And that's what Buscemi is. You know what I mean? He's the guy who's fucking with that. And it's like, it's like watching somebody paint with like primary colors. And then all of a sudden somebody just throws every other color at the screen. And you're like, what the fuck? What just happened? Just Jackson Pollock exists. Next, we got best scene. For me, I'm just going to say mine first. Okay. Only just to get out of the way because I know we're both going to cover this one. But I have just one. Sure. All right. So when they leave to ditch the cars and they leave Mr. Blonde and the cop. And my, as we're rewatching this, I'm just like, let's fucking go. I'm so excited. I know this is iconic even before watching it. You know what I mean? Like just going into it. I think even as like just like a general movie fan, you've either seen this scene like in the background somewhere. It's just been like used and uh, like recycled in so many different ways. But he turns on the radio stuck in the middle with you starts playing. He goes and cuts the ear just like you described, cuts away from the camera as far as character work like iconic shots and just overall swagger. This is like peak movie stuff, not only for Michael Madsen, but even for Tarantino. Even when he goes to the car, the sound goes quiet and all you can hear in the distance is just a bunch of kids just playing and laughing and it's a perfect juxtaposition to what the fuck is going on in this garage. And he goes and grabs the gasoline, heads back inside, songs back. Now he's dousing this guy in gasoline and the cop is begging for his life. And just as he's about to light him on fire, Mr. Orange wakes up and it just unloads a clip into him. And that's when you find out he's an undercover cop. And you're just watching these two cops just comparing misery with each other and sitting in his own blood. It's just a perfect scene from start to finish. That's as good as filmmaking gets, period. 100%. And the, the great thing about this scene, and it, you, don't, you don't think about it until after the scene is over, Marvin never rats. Yeah. He's getting his ear chopped off. He's getting doused in gasoline. At no point does he say, yo, that guy over there, your friend, Mr. Orange. Yeah, he's the rat. He's the cop. Yeah. He never slips up at all. And, you know, we're, this is an audio only podcast right now. But like I am looking at an action figurine box right now yeah. of that exact scene. Yeah. That, I actually didn't realize that was right there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I actually have that scene. Um, and it's probably like one of my favorite. I guess, I guess what you, what do you call these? Do you call them like a little bust or like a little kind of like, it's like a scene from a movie, but with action figures, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. And it's actually got stuck in the middle of you on the side. So yeah, uh, I've got that. I don't know when the hell that was made. Maybe at some point in the nineties or the early two thousands, but yeah. It's a great cop, honestly. Like that's like, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, iconic scene. And so for me, this was super tough. So, the ear cutting scene definitely in the mix for me 
the final scene when everyone dies also in the mix for me and the final scene for me that i had to mull over was the opening scene where it just sets the movie up it goes right into the title sequence and i am honestly just torn about which way i want to go with i think for the sake of you choosing the air cutting scene and just doing a great job of describing why that is an iconic scene i'm gonna go with the opening scene of the movie yeah, fair totally because the writing is incredible the setup is fantastic we get to have a look and a feel of who all the characters are the hierarchy of power and my favorite moment of the entire scene is when they talk about tipping yeah because as a brit that didn't grow up tipping i'm like yes mr pink is my guy <laughs> like i don't want to tip he doesn't want to tip and he's an american and he's saying that and just going through the the topic the debate of why you should tip and why you shouldn't tip but i love that trust me it's such it, tipping i think is one of the most interesting things like to talk about in the world like mm. even when we went to japan there's no tipping over there too and it was such a weird situation if you go and drop some money in there they'll find you and give you back your money Wild. they are not about this uh tipping culture mm-hmm. and like i totally understand why and you get the best service i've ever cut in the world in a place like that and it's interesting to see how different it is from our culture too yeah but that opening scene even just the way the camera moves around the the, the character that goes like pitch black at one point yeah it's like you are voyeuristically kind of like peeping in to this conversation and like i said going right into that title sequ- sequence yep. the slow motion walk that the song the music oh chef's kiss as good as it gets uh which leads into the last part which is star rating out of five five being the best zero being the worst where does this movie end up for you oh this is easy for me Uh, and listen there are some people that are and again no wrong or right answer here but some people prefer late tarantino some people prefer middle tarantino i prefer personally early tarantino and for me Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are one and two, one A and one B in terms of my favorite Tarantino movies. So it's very easy for me. Reservoir Dogs is getting five stars. Damn. Okay, man, that's actually pretty crazy. I actually didn't expect you to say five stars, but that's pretty gangster and very understandable. This is if you gave this a five stars, I would. I don't think anybody in the world argues. Oh, and by the way, what a fantastic ninety-minute watch. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the length of this movie. It's like, yo, it hits you and you haven't been like, you know, strenuously tired from watching a two and a half hour epic. It's like 90 minutes, boom, boom, boom. It hits you. Yep. It's like, oh, just beautiful, man. It's perfect. Uh, for me, again, Tarantino Mark, mm-hmm. right? I am going with 4.5. All right. And it's funny because I don't think this is Tarantino's best movie. And that's my biggest criticism of this movie. That's like that. It's just not as good as his other work which happens to be some of the greatest movies of all time. Sure. Right? How hard it is. Like, that's kind of the fucked up thing. My perception of this movie is purely based on the fact that I think every other movie, like, or so many of his other movies are five stars, above five stars sometimes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's how much I value this guy's catalog. For me, this movie is like, it's like like the visual representation of like, again, as a Kanye mark and all that kind of stuff as well, my biggest correlation I can make there is this is like his 808s and Heartbreak. It's simple. Like, the, the framing of all the shots are so simple. It's basically just a steady cam with, like, just perfectly framed shots. And uh, it's just tremendous acting, amazing storytelling. Boom, classic right there. But next we're getting My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. You know what I mean? It's just if, if Dark Fantasy is a five... I have a hard time giving this also a five, if that makes any sense. I totally understand. Yeah, Yeah, that's cool. And I also have to say, 
this is a movie that I think a lot of up and coming indie filmmakers study to death, mm-hmm. right? Because when you think about it, it's such a simple movie. Yeah. Like Tarantino coming up with the plot, a heist gone wrong. Literally, I think 80% of the movie takes place in the warehouse. Yeah. Very easy to get a location and get a bunch of actors and then give them three or four weeks, shoot the movie, right? Yeah, and this that, movie is basically like a, a stage play. They're just in like a various locations. Oh, you know, I would love to Again, see a stage Again, also play. rumored that he might do something like that as well. Oh man, that I would, would be that. awesome. Yeah. And, I, it's, and you're right, it's actually a perfect movie that would translate literally scene for scene pretty much to the stage. Yeah, and, and the best thing, like if he ever did want to mix those two things, like have a full black cast and do this all over again, mm-hmm. do it on a stage. And it's like a whole fresh new experience and I think it would be like the biggest thing in the world. I'd love that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Maybe a boy in blue here can answer some of these questions about this rat business you've been talking about. You're a piece of work, my friend. Ain't a bad idea. Let's get him the fuck out of here. Before we even get off Tarantino, one thing I wanted to quickly just do is because we're always talking about what should his last movie be. He's always talked about how he's going to do 10 movies and he's done. It doesn't necessarily mean he's not going to work anymore. He might make some like limited series. He might do a TV show. He might do something. But his last movie... Tarantino's 10th movie like I just want to go into some like the rumored films along the way from like you know this time when we're watching Reservoir Dogs Mm -hmm. all the way up until now right Uh, I just want to see what you think what would fit his catalog the best okay if he were to add that to it sure and some of it is contextual too because like the first one I have is just from the 90s right after they're making Reservoir Dogs Tarantino was actually thinking of developing a movie about Luke Cage Right, and you can kind of get that. Like, there's so many comic book references, even in this movie, but also through his entire catalog. And it's like almost like a shame that he never actually made a comic book movie, right? And when you think of like this whole experience with him, apparently he had a whole meeting with uh, Ed Pressman, who owns the rights, or at the time owned the rights to Luke Cage. He made a whole thing. He wanted to produce that movie. He wanted to cast Lawrence Fishburne as Luke Cage, and even though like he liked the idea. That's when he shifted his, obviously, (laughs) historically, he shifted to Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. But Luke Cage could have been one of those movies. But before you even get your take on that, the other option at this time, Tarantino went to a film studio with a completed script of a full Silver Surfer movie. And basically they passed on this fucking movie. They passed on a Silver Surfer Tarantino movie, which is like, Imagine historically, like what a fucking faux pas, a comic book movie made by Quentin Tarantino. How much more box office could an idea be in 2022? And on top of that, uh, when you watch this uh, Reservoir Dogs, you can see in the back of Mr. Orange's wall, there's a Silver Surfer poster just chilling there, which is probably knowing Tarantino was like a nice foreshadow. He probably had this script sitting in his back pocket and he's ready to launch. That was like a perfect little transition for that. And again, another kind of like an interesting little moment because had Tarantino made a comic book movie film that early in his career, I wonder if he would have gone on to do everything else he did because he would have had a very different perspective on making films if his next movie was a big blockbuster. I think the key thing that you said there that really intrigues me the most is a Tarantino comic book movie. Mm -hmm. And it's not for what other people may be thinking. Oh yeah, let's have a Tarantino movie in the MCU or, or a DC Tarantino movie. It's about his resume and it, and it goes back to the initial question, his 10th movie. When you look at his resume, he's done 
black exploitation movie, a western, a world war epic, a gangster movies, right? Heist a, movie. A, 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 a heist movie, a love letter to Hollywood. Wouldn't it be perfect for a comic book uh, movie and, and, a, and a movie from a comic book genre to be sitting there in his portfolio to be like, yep, I've done that movie, that movie, that movie. Oh, I've done a comic book movie yeah, too. Yeah. So from that perspective only, I would love to, to, to see what that would look like, especially in this day and age when, you know, comic book movies are commercially just, you know, it could be, you know, hypothetically his most successful movie ever. If yeah. you were to make something now with Marvel or even with DC. Yeah. Cause if you look at his, like how much his films have grossed, I think it's like one or $2 billion. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, if he went into a Marvel movie right now, he could just double his gross, like right off top yeah. just from doing one, ex- like one Marvel movie. I just don't ever see him doing something with Disney. I don't see him doing a comic book movie period at this point. I think he's too precious with this 10th movie mm-hmm. to actually end it off on something like this. Yeah, I agree. Um, next, obviously the big rumored ones were Kill Bill. When fortune smiles on something as violent and ugly as revenge, it seems proof like no other that not only does God exist, you're doing his will. We always hear about Kill Bill 3, but he also kind of was thinking about doing Kill Bill 3 and 4. Mm-hmm. Same way he had like a double package and he counts one and two as one film. He was going to do that same thing over here. Basically, during the production of one and two, he originally thought that he was going to do two more. He was thinking that he would make them every 10 years. And uh, basically every couple of years, he would tell people, oh, I'm planning a sequel. 2004, he's planning a sequel. 2007, he's planning a sequel. 2021, I'm planning a sequel. And basically he's thinking it would be like, it would be a situation where it would expand on the mythology of everything. Sophie Fatale would get all of Bill's money. She'll raise Nikki, who would basically go on to take on the bride. And Nikki basically deserved all the revenge that she like could get because, you know, the bride kills her mom. And uh, yeah, he was even thinking like at that time, maybe I'll shoot some scenes so I can incorporate to them like way down the line when yeah. it actually makes sense. But yeah, he was he was going to do that. And even as early as last year, Uma Thurman actually brought up the idea that he was thinking about making something like this, especially with uh, even casting wise. Maya Hawk would have been, uh, I, believe, I guess, the bride's daughter and or whatever it would have been. But he was basically reluctant and still hasn't come up. But this is probably the most likely one that actually still could exist. Interesting. So obviously Kill Bill and the Kill Bill movies are the ones part of his portfolio that is a franchise. Yeah. Right. And to see him do a trilogy or, you know, a saga where there's a few more entries as a way to end off makes all the sense in the world. Right. Arguably his most commercially successful movies in terms of like merchandise and things that spun off of just the Kill Bill universe. Yeah. Fantastic. It's just, and I'm, I'm very interested to hear about that Uma Thurman quote because I thought for quite a long time, given the life-changing injury she suffered on set for Kill Bill Volume 2, whether she would still want to work. But then again, at the same time, she's worked with him, Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. So she kind of feels like he's one of his muses. I think they had a falling off, but I think they got that, like, they patched things reconciled up? and all that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. all right. I, that's what I've heard. I mean, obviously, we don't know these people, but yeah. like, from what I've read online, that's what it seems like. Right. It Again, very logical yeah very logical i would love if he had like the option of just do sex machina all this for me and just make a third and just be like it's part of the kill bill movie right and that's still counts as one and then i'll make another one after that Mm -hmm. (laughs) that would be my ideal situation Uh, or even like a limited series of like kill bill could you imagine if he just took his ideas for three and four and just 
you know, take make a make a whole series make out of it. A TV show, and why not? Like yeah. th- th- that would be like a fun way to kind of finish that story, keep that story going, and basically expand it as much as you want. Could you imagine how much like a Netflix or a HBO Max or a, or a Hulu or an Amazon pay for that right yeah, now exactly. in this market? Yeah, exactly. And if anybody could be like doing something really special in that space right now, that's already very populated. Mm-hmm. Tarantino is the guy. Yep. Uh, next, I got Killer Crow. The whole idea w- of this is that it was supposed to be like his next entry into that whole Django Inglorious Bastards situation of like getting revenge. Right. Right. It was uh, it was supposed to be a group of World War Two era black troops who, have, uh, in his words, have been fucked over by American military and kind of go apeshit. They basically the way Lieutenant Aldo Rain in Brad Pitt in Bastards. Uh, the way he has that Apache resistance, the black troops would go on an Apache warpath and kill a bunch of white soldiers and white officers on a military base and just make a warpath to Switzerland. Wow. That sounds like an amazing movie. Uh, those are like two of my favorite movies. Inglorious Bastards, like the way you said one and two of Pulp Fiction, and the Inglorious Bastards and Pulp Fiction are my one and two. They switch all the time. The last thing I watched is my last favorite movie. You know what's uh, cool about uh, Tarantino, which we've discussed at length on this on this podcast, is the plethora of talent and actors he's worked with, young, old, from different generations. And I remember when you know the pre-production, the rumor mill was starting to circulate regarding casting around Inglorious Bastards, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was so close to being attached to that project. Who was he going to play? I don't, I don't even know. Maybe he was a character that was kind of rewritten or completely written off in the final version of the script. Yeah. But that was a rumor for a long, long time, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe he would be playing like one of the Nazis or something. You like never that, know. Right? But like, it, I feel like Tarantino is like this thing where he can take like care people you're familiar with as actors yeah. and then put them in his movies and you don't even realize. Like, I remember a lot of people when they heard Mike Myers was in Inglorious Bastards, they were like, wait, where the what? fuck was Mike yeah, Myers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then when you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, he's right fucking there yeah. having this scene with Michael Fassbender. And so, yeah, so hearing a, a pitch like that, I just want to see him work with some of my other favorite actors that like aren't A-listers anymore, aren't like, you know, um, the, the biggest stars right now like big box office blockbuster action movie stars but like I don't know like a Tarantino movie set in that time you know throw in Stallone or Schwarzenegger or something to the mix somehow be, I think it would be fun I think it's a shame that we don't get all these movies man I think this guy needs to just keep making all these oh, movies oh yeah uh, the last one I'll give uh, I have a few more but the last one I'll give for now is uh, the biggest rumor of recent time was going to be a Star Trek movie Right? Oh, I heard about this. Yeah. yeah. And he pitched this whole idea to Paramount where he was going to like he brought together a whole writing group to finish out the concept. He was going to direct the movie. J.J. Abrams was going to produce it, I believe. He basically just kind of decided that he, he was going to do a standalone Star Trek movie. It wasn't going to be part of anything else. It was going to be completely as a story by itself. It was going to deal with time travel and all that kind of stuff. But it would have existed in its own little pocket. That's the kind of thing that seems like a beautiful I was like a part of me kind of wants to see what Tarantino would do in like an existing space already because even when he did like the CSI episode right and you can just see like as like a one-off in that whole situation but I remember like that was such a big moment right and on TV I didn't even watch CSI but I watched that episode as a kid who this was before me becoming like a big Tarantino fan and and for me just to be like okay cool this guy is directing this I gotta check this out Imagine that as like part of a major franchise. I feel like a guy like this, if he was like a big Star Wars fan or something like mad, like just be part of something big and do something with it that kind of 
just changes the whole dynamic of what people think is capable of that. It goes back to the very first pitch that you gave in this segment. And it's the idea of, oh, Tarantino doing a comic book movie would be so cool as a part of his resume. Yeah. Well, Tarantino doing a Star Trek movie would be also great because then it'll be- sci-fi movie, imagine. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's his sci-fi entry. Yeah. If he's such a fan of genre, we haven't seen him do sci-fi. What yeah. would a Tarantino script in the world of science fiction, whether it's Star Trek or anything else to do with time travel, what would that look like? Give me that. It's a shame because it's so interesting to think of how he would have to adapt his style because it is so pop culture centric. Like when you think of like modern directors like James Gunn, uh, Edgar Wright, who are like, that's probably the closest thing we're going to get if we like... I don't know, I think, right? Like uh, of somebody who can like bring in still like that pop culture flair, still bring in their own unique little space, have such a connection to music, but not be able to, like it's still not Tarantino at the end of the day, right? Like I would still love to see how that would kind of work out. You know what would be cool? Before we kind of end the podcast and give our recommendations for the week, should we go down the Rotten Tomatoes audience score of, of Tarantino movies and see kind of where they land in terms of like what we feel about these movies and yeah, where yeah. they land. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. So number one, I think no surprise, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. 96%. Low. Right? Low. It should be 100%. <laughs> low. Yeah, <laughs> it should, it should low. be like- a, Very low. It should be 110%. Yeah, exactly. Number two, Reservoir Dogs, 94%. Okay. Number three, and now they've thrown in movies where he's either written or written and directed. Number three, True Romance. That's a surprise for me. 93%. I like True Romance a lot, but I'm just surprised it'd be like the third one. Right. Then you've got number four, Django Unchained, 92%. Man, where the fuck is Inglorious Bastards? What's going on? You'll see. Number five, Kill Bill Volume 2 at 89%. Then number six comes Inglorious Bastards at 88%. It's really interesting to me that because even when I remember when that movie came out, mm-hmm. it was a little contentious of like, how good is this movie? Right. I, I don't think people kind of appreciated how fucking good it is. That movie is like a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Every single scene could be the best scene in the movie. Right. That's my favorite thing about Tarantino movies. When you watch Pulp Fiction, same thing. I can say the exact same thing. These are perfect movies. Yeah. I wouldn't change a goddamn thing about them. And that's why I can give Reservoir Dogs five stars because I feel like I can give most of his catalog five stars. I agree. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, and then literally after that, you've got like Grindhouse at 87%, Jackie Brown, 85%, Kill Bill Volume 1 at 81%. So, I mean, in general, what do you think? I mean, literally the top three they've got there is Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and True Romance, which kind of almost is funny because I didn't see this until this segment now that we're just talking about this, but like I said, I'm an early Tarantino fan and... True it's, Romance, Reservoir Dogs, and Pulp Fiction, those three movies coming out within ni- literally 1992, 1993, 1994 was just like, man, all of his like genius finally being shown to the world I is incredible. I can't imagine man. that, right? Like imagine you can't even get a movie made and then just luckily you pass your script at the right person and then all of a sudden you make some of the best movies of all time within the next like two, three years. It goes back to your example of, of Kanye. Yeah. It's like he just did, c- continuously delivers five-star albums in yeah. in different ways and he has different ideas and concepts for the project yep. but they're still five stars and, man. and the big thing about like both of them is the fact that they're not okay with just delivering the same shit over and over mm. they change up their style when you think i like what he did with pulp fiction true romance and reservoir dogs all right cool now i'm gonna flip the script completely and now i'm putting out jackie brown like that is a totally different situation oh i'm gonna put out 
Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, and guess what? Now I'm going to flip the script all over again, and I'm going to try doing Death Proof, which is a completely different experience, you know, whether you like it or not. But then he goes, all right, cool, you're not 100% sure if you love that? Same thing, 808s, I always make that comparison. If you don't love it all the way, that's cool. People didn't love 808s all the way. I'm going to drop in Glorious Bastards. Again, another one that you could easily compare to his Dark like Dark Twisted Fantasy. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, it's kind of crazy how many things that he has where you could easily make... So I think him and Kanye is like the best comparison I could possibly make. It's okay. such a one and one. I think they're both geniuses. Yep. And they're both like flawed geniuses. You know, like they, they, sure. they, not, they might not be not great, perfect. They might not, they might not be great people. Yeah. But as far as art goes, fucking the best of the best. You know, I just realized this is the uh, the first Tarantino movie that we've reviewed yeah. and discussed and talked about. I can't wait until over the coming years we do the rest of his catalog. I can't wait. It's gonna be fantastic. Yeah. We're gonna do a whole like. I can't wait to do every single one, yeah. but like the specific ones that we're like obviously like the biggest fans of. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be so much fun. It is. It's gonna be a blast. Uh, let's get into our last segment of the show. Let's get wrecked. Our weekly recommendation segment. Uh, Jumba, give me Sanders' pick this week. I am recommending, and it's gonna be no surprise, Pulp Fiction. This is my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. It, like I said, single-handedly revitalized John Travolta's career, and at the same time put Samuel Jackson on the map. It's a five-star script made by a director who, after Pulp Fiction, would never, ever have to struggle to make whatever movie he wanted to make ever again. It won him his Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and after that, he was off to the races. Yeah, like that's pretty much as good as any recommendation is possibly going to get. But uh, uh, my recommendation for this week is uh, I wanted to like think of a heist movie that is a little bit modern that I, I still think is like extremely high as far as quality goes. My recommendation this week for Bros Pick is Baby Driver. Again, heist movie. It's a romantic movie and it's also like a non-traditional musical. That's one of my favorite parts about that movie. It's it's one of my favorite uses of pop culture music in any film really. Like the performances are fantastic. The writing is so sharp. And Edgar Wright is just putting on this directing masterclass. He's pulling this off with like the precision of like a Jedi master, right? If you need an example of what I'm talking about, go just on YouTube and type in Baby Driver tequila scene. And you'll just see how perfectly synchronized everything is with that song. And it perfectly encapsulates, if you didn't notice it the first time you watched that movie, go watch that scene and then go watch the whole movie back because it's a fucking perfect movie. If you ask me... It's one of the most rewatchable masterpieces. But that's everything for this week. Jump with, where can everybody find us? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you can, leave us a rate and a review. That really goes a long way on helping our show get found by new audiences. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week, guys. Take care. <laughs>